Good morning. I'm Joe Lichty. I teach in the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies program here. And for anything to do with peace, vengeance, reconciliation, you name it, it's probably important that you know that before I was here, I spent 23 years working on related issues in Northern Ireland. And I'm Paul Keim. I teach uh, Bible, religion, and languages here. Uh, I was the academic dean at Goshen College, uh, 97 to 2001, currently in recovery, uh, <laughs> and also on sabbatical, so uh, haven't seen first years yet. Now, I think Paul's going to show a couple fun slides here. While yeah, I, uh, just to uh, enhance the uh, self-introductions here. Yes, and why, this uh, is while I, I announce one more time that although it didn't make it into the first round of notices on this uh, lecture, this is an extended convo. Uh, it'll go 45-ish minutes. It is true that if we went two hours, you would be begging us for more, but we, we aren't going to go two hours. Right, so. right. So. Yeah. Things happen over time. We, we recognize this. Um, but we should know. Only Steve Nolt knows the real date. Uh, but at any rate, we've, we've been around. We've been around, yeah. Yes, indeed. Let's get this over with. Paul. Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay. So imagine a conversation that took place about two years ago. So, Joe, here's a book I think you should read. It's called Eye for an Eye. It's by a guy named William Ian Miller. It's about vengeance. Paul, you may have noticed that I'm in peace studies. We, we don't do vengeance. We leave vengeance to you Old Testament types. Well, yes, but, but this is about vengeance societies. And it seems to throw light on strategies for keeping the peace. Okay, but didn't those strategies tend to involve chopping off body parts? Well, sure, if you want to get technical about it. But Miller maintains that vengeance societies were skilled in assessing and responding to in injury and harm, enabling them to keep the peace. He reflects on it from the perspective of one culture he knows well, the Old Norse world, that of the Vikings. He shows how their preoccupation with vengeance reflected assumptions about how human relationships operate and how they might be maintained with the minimum of violence. Vikings. Minimum of violence. I guess they were having a really bad century when they came to Ireland then. But you have got me interested, slightly interested. For sure, what you're saying flies in the face of conventional wisdom about the Vikings. But weren't these eye-for-an-eye -eye cultures inherently cruel? Well, not necessarily. In fact, people in vengeance cultures were much better than we seem to be at assessing proper recompense for injury and for finding mutually acceptable terms of settlement so that peace could be restored. Okay, but I'm still not making the jump as to how all this might inform a Christian peacemaking ethic. You could make a case that the whole basis of Jesus' ethic was to reject the tit-for-tat thing when it comes to human relationships. And there is something to that. But insofar as we assume that forgiveness and reconciliation happen outside the dynamics of human conflict, or that they circumvent the normal modes of human interaction. We run the risk of making peacemaking some <coughs> kind of magical formula that need not take notions of fairness into account. So you're trying to tell me that if people who reject violence would commit themselves to really understanding how vengeance works, sort of vengeance at its best, we could come up with a stronger, more realistic account of forgiveness and reconciliation 
and would also make more sense to more people. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Well then, I'll give you two years. But if Miller hasn't convinced me by then, I'm doing the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture on my original theme, Lots of Joe's Special Thoughts About Peace in Northern Ireland. And need I add, I'll be doing it without you. Okay, now. Obviously, Miller and I were able to convince Joe, so uh, you've been spared another scintillating treatise on all things Irish. Yeah, well, and obviously only one of us has maintained any shred of dignity through this process, <laughs> but, uh, but it's true. Paul and Miller did convince me, although I admit that at this very moment I find it a little hard to remember exactly how they accomplished that. But in any case, let's get underway by setting a context for exploring what we can learn by thinking carefully about vengeance. The same spirit that empowered Jesus also empowers us to love enemies, to forgive rather than to seek revenge, to practice right relationships, to rely on the community of faith to settle disputes, and to resist evil without violence. This is an excerpt from the 1995 Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective, and it suggests that at the very heart of a Christian peacemaking experience lies an implicit opposition. Forgiveness on the one hand, vengeance on the other. And according to this understanding, peacemaking is animated by the Holy Spirit. It's based on the example of Jesus. It's built on right relationships. It's inclined to settle differences outside the courts. It conscientiously is committed to rejecting violence. And it's always opposed to taking revenge against those who have harmed us. And the scriptures offered in support speak of turning the other cheek, of avoiding lawsuits, of leaving vengeance to God. Now we certainly affirm the rejection of personal vengeance, and we see that impulse in contrast to the biblical mandate to seek peace and reconciliation. And certainly we're not advocating for vengeance or we're not advocating a return to principles of limited vengeance as a means of solving conflict. So why study vengeance? It would seem to contradict the Christian peacemaking ethic. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rejects that ancient principle, an eye for an eye. Instead, he commands non-resistance, non-retaliation, uh, and, and disarming acts of gratuitous favor towards evildoers, beggars, and borrowers alike. We might begin by defamiliarizing ourselves with a set of concepts and terms that may seem quite familiar. So consider the following definitions culled from standard lexical sources. Uh, and if I may interpret for my learned friend, when Paul says things like, called from standard lexical sources, he generally means, I looked it up in Wikipedia this morning. Uh, so don't be intimidated, and it will all make some kind of sense. So two terms that we will be dealing with. Vengeance. You might note in particular here uh, the interesting phrase, with a vengeance, used as an intensifier. Uh, to express something with great force or violence or uh, to a great degree. And then forgiveness and forgive. Um, yeah, what we would expect at this stage. Okay, where are we here? Um, oh, sorry, not there yet? Oh yeah, okay, I'll put that over there. So when we think of vengeance in related terms, 
it's immediately clear how powerful a theme that it is in our collective imagination. We are bombarded with vengeance images and ideas from every possible angle. It is the stuff of literature and of popular culture. You can't pick up a newspaper without reading stories of payback. Most recently in the tragic case of a long-term grudge that erupted into deadly violence during a city council meeting in the suburbs of St. Louis. We hear phrases like, you're going to pay for that. I'm going to get even. I'll get you for that. And we know about revenge best served cold, about crimes of passion. When we think of vengeance, we may think of personal retaliation against those who have caused real harm to us. We may think of clan-based systems of collective guilt and punishment, the kind of systems that generate honor killings. And the terms around vengeance may call to mind primitive legal systems which do manage to, to prevent unbridled retaliation, but at the cost of insisting on gruesome in-kind punishments. Or we may think of vengeance as legalized violence against adversaries. There are many passages in the Bible that speak of vengeance and vindication. There are references to personal vengeance or revenge taken by kings against national enemies. Vengeance becomes a common designation for military victory, as in vindication of the cause of the victor. The avenger of blood, the Goel Hadam, uh, revenges the loss of life for near kin. And of course, the paradigmatic example of revenge in excess is the boast of Lamech. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. In biblical statements of prophetic judgment, Vengeance is overwhelmingly a matter of divine providence. The sufferings and setbacks of the people Israel are interpreted as divine vengeance against them for their unfaithfulness. Divine vengeance takes the form of military defeat, pestilence, famine, shrines and temples destroyed, land devastated, and enemies settling in the land while the people of Israel are exiled from the land. And when the prophets speak of Israel's salvation, those oracles, too, revel in God's vengeance. In these, in these cases, God's vengeance against the enemies of Israel. Divine vengeance is also a symbol of justice, the personification of a principle of moral order in which all are called to account for their actions. Appeals to divine justice also help to arbitrate individual conflicts. Now, so far, that's all so Old Testament, but the vengeance theme is by no means absent from the New Testament either. In the book of Revelation, for example, it speaks of the days of vengeance, and these are associated with God's righteous judgment at the end of the age. One of the reasons why it's important to understand the ancient idea of vengeance is that the God of the Bible is depicted in part as a God of vengeance. God's zealous enforcement of covenant obligations provides a moral safety net for the poor, for widows, for orphans, and for resident aliens. And when the justice demands of Torah are neglected, those in need cry out to God who prosecutes their case and vindicates their rights. There's something deep-seated and universal about the expectation of divine vengeance, of the deities as ultimate arbiters, of uh, uh, ultimate avengers of, inju of injustice. Wherever the cultural institutions of human justice fail, then ultimate appeal is directed to the gods for satisfaction. 
The vindication of victims by God is often depicted in terms of supernatural judgments, acts of God, fate, and the uncanny. But against this backdrop, a backdrop of human and divine vengeance, the Bible also presents insights into a developing criticism or softening of vengeance. So even at the very begin or near, near the beginning of the book of Genesis, Cain, the first murderer, he's not dealt with on the basis of a life for a life. He is punished but protected. God places a mark upon Cain and forbids anyone to kill him. And in the heart of the so-called Holiness Code of Leviticus 17 to 26, chapter 19 counsels a justice of the heart that includes the following. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall negotiate with your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In his letter to the Christians of Rome, Paul reflects this same ethic. And with reference to Deuteronomy 32, admonishes his readers, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The moral counterpart to the bombast of Lamech, and one can almost imagine his, his wives, uh, Ada and Zillah, rolling their eyes as he goes on in this way. But there comes this... Uh, instruction from Jesus to Peter. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if a brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And as the final example among many possible examples, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges the ancient adage of eye for an eye. He commands his followers to extend love even to enemies and to those who persecute. But the classic form of vengeance in the Bible is the so-called lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And so talionic is used as an adjective to refer to laws or cultures that contain this principle Predating the laws of the Bible by centuries, this principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, enshrines an ancient standard of justice that many today consider harsh and primitive. We imagine clans locked in generational cycles of retribution, a society of one-eyed people, missing limbs, but secure in the knowledge that accounts have been settled. Doesn't sound all that great, does it? But maybe we can salvage a little bit of contextual dignity for the good old Lex Talionis by thinking of it as a stage in the development of law. And this stage represents an advance over unfettered clan justice, the kind of thing we've been talking about, that revenge-driven retaliatory killing in which the ante is upped with every round and the spiral of violence seems to go on and on. In the face of that kind of savagery then, surely, the principle of one eye for one eye, one tooth for one tooth, and so on, surely that represents an improvement. Well, our vengeance guru, William Ian Miller, doesn't concede even that point. For as he reminds us, the talion provides more than just a top limit, he says, no more than one eye or one life. It also sets a bottom limit, no less than one eye or one life either. No letting your cowardice, says Miller, incline you to be forgiving. 
Uh, and note the equation here of the Talion and of Miller, forgiveness equals cowardice, ouch. Part of our concern here is to present a different face of vengeance systems. The logic of the Talionic principle is not, as usually assumed, that if you take my eye, I must take yours in some ancient ritual of perverted parody. Rather, if you destroy my eye, your eye now belongs to me. And this compels a certain empathy in you for my loss and provides the basis for negotiating a settlement that does not undervalue my eye. What we want to do now is identify a, a few key features of Talionic societies. And the first one is uh, almost a non-feature, by which I mean to say, these vengeance societies are not devoted to celebrating the kind of emotional, <coughs> instinctive, lashback response that we often think of and that we often associate with the word vengeance. In fact, uh, Talionic societies recognize the violent potential of that kind of vengeance at least as clearly as we do. So here's our first point. Vengeance societies are devoted to, to containing the effects of visceral violence and to checking personal vengeance as calculated solely by the victim. Now it's hard to know where to begin describing any complex system because everything is bound together in some way. But we've decided here that our point of entry needs to be uh, in saying that Italianic society is an economy. When we think of an economy, we usually think immediately of money, stocks, banks, etc. But that's all in the monetary economy. An economy is actually defined as a system, especially of interaction and exchange. To not Wikipedia, but the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, human social life as a whole can meaningfully be described as a system of interaction and exchange, and so can many subsets of human life. And think of that subset that is your life as college students. Dorm rooms, classrooms, academic departments, workplaces, small group housing, clubs, sports, friends, and, and of course always your families. Each and every one of those is an economy. That is, it is a system of interaction and exchange. And if you give those economies just a little thought, you will quickly be able to name the patterns of interaction and exchange typical of each. So thinking about the nature of such economies, the ones you're enmeshed in, but, but, uh, but especially Talionic societies, we want to focus the idea of economy a little bit more. And specifically, because those economies have to do with human relationships, and because dynamics surrounding human relationships always have some strong moral implications, we want to say that Italianic society is a moral economy, not just an economy, but a moral economy. The moral economy of vengeance societies is a wash in language borrowed from the monetary economy, a language of measuring, calculating, paying, uh, debts, gifts, paying back, all these are ever present. Sometimes this language signifies actual exchanges of material objects, say, you stole something from me, I want it back. But often the language borrowed from the monetary economy is used with reference to very different interactions and exchanges, having to do with things like status in the community, insults, hurt feelings, and other things bound up under the heading of honor and shame. Such qualitative factors 
are deftly negotiated alongside quantitative considerations. The activity in the moral economy of Italianic society is directed most of all toward its primary intense commitment, and that is a commitment to evenness. Evenness is the standard a moral economy is trying to maintain or attain, and evenness is an idea that we all have some basic understanding of. We recognize an even relationship. It will somehow be in right balance. Now, it doesn't have to be stuck in balance at some static point. In fact, a good relationship won't be. But there's some kind of dynamic balance, some kind of give and take that we're trying to achieve in a good relationship. And another name for this dynamic balance is reciprocity. Even relationships are reciprocal. The hallmarks of such reciprocity are going to include things like mutuality, interdependence, an inherent sense of balance, exchange, proportionality, equity, and so forth. And so a healthy moral economy is always going to be marked by reciprocity. Limited or failed reciprocity can only mean an unhealthy moral economy. To take one example, family relationships are not based usually on tit-for-tat calculations of evenness, but even in kinship systems, and one is tempted to say especially there, the maintenance of fairness and equity is very important. The apparent lack of evenness in family relationships from favored children to the equal distribution of estates has torn many families apart, even those who love each other. Love is gracious and self-giving, we know. It forgives wrongs and is ready to make up. But that does not make one oblivious to one's own obligations, nor those of the loved ones. Love and forgiveness in no way undermines the underlying characteristics of reciprocity that define our relationships. If anything, love enhances reciprocity, sharpens responsibility, and the fulfillment of mutual obligations. It reinforces evenness, all in the service of maximizing human potential and building human community. The way the moral economy of Italianic society works to achieve this evenness and to prevent violence is by careful measurement, careful calculation of how to get back to even in any particular case of violation. Now, in fact, we all do this, and our first calculation is likely to be A equals A. For example, if you stole my bike, A, I want my bike, A, back. Or if you can't give it back, then you better replace it with exactly the same kind of bike. So A equals A. And of course, in Talionic societies, the big A equals A calculation was uh, I for an I. I equals I. You took my I, I now own your I. But A equals A evenness is often impossible. And even when A equals A exchange, exchanges are possible, they can be pretty unsatisfying. You took my eye, now I've taken yours, it was mine to take. Perhaps I feel somewhat better because now that you have no eye as well, you, might, you can really understand what I've gone through. But I'm still without an eye. Might there be an A equals B evenness that would be better than A equals A? In the monetary economy, we are used to measuring A equals B equivalencies in terms of price. But we know that market forces drive prices up, down, and around the intrinsic value of things. Can we really trust that A equals B? Did I get a good deal or was I taken for a ride? 
But if the principle of exchange is expressed as identity, A equals A, rather than equivalence, A equals B, then we can imagine that the balance is just right. Uh, the price, uh, Miller puts it this way, the price is a just price, an eye for an eye. We can smudge this too pretty picture by worrying whether a blue eye equals a brown, a nearsighted one, a 20-20, or the eye of a loser, the eye of a person of honor. Still, the rule as stated makes the poetic claim of identity, a powerful statement of getting the price exactly right. Whatever about getting the price exactly right, what these Talionic societies were true masters of was to how to get even by making response B commensurable with offense A. Now note these following examples from early Anglo-Saxon law, and these are over a millennium old, and they're basically the law as a set of equivalences. If grabbing of hair occurs, two and a half shillings for compensation. If bearing a bone occurs, compensate with three shillings. If an eye is out, 50 shillings, an eye's worth a lot. If the mouth or an eye is disfigured, compensate with 12 shillings. For the four front teeth, six shillings eat. The tooth the sends next to them, four shillings. That which is next to it, three shillings. And those after, a shilling each. If the big toe is off, 10 shillings. For each of the other toes, pay half as much as stated for the fingers. And this goes on and on and on. So law as equivalencies. Now, the key terms then for understand, uh, another set of terms necessary for understanding Italianic society are commensurate and commensurable. These aren't terms we tend to use a lot, but we still are likely to have a general idea of what they mean. To make commensurate is to make even or equal. Things that are commensurable are agreed to be even or equal, even though they're different. But even if we don't use these terms a lot, we learn to commensurate from a very early age. Think of kids trading baseball cards, trading marbles, stickers, whatever. And then think of the more complex commensurability of trading baseball cards for marbles or for the use of your bike or whatever. And of course, we all make daily judgments of commensurability with our money. Is this Goshen College education worth it? Well, of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, Human relationships being what they are, in other words, frequently damaged, broken, or ruptured in some way, the moral economy of Italianic society is particularly directed to the question of how we get to even, how we get back to even, in light of insult, injury, and injustice. So the moral economy of Italianic societies focuses on a particular area of human experience, that domain of insult, injury, and injustice. The moral economy of Italianic society has one great foundational assumption and working principle, and that is all debts must be paid. And if you have as a deep principle that all debts must be paid, there are two worldviews in particular, according to, to Miller, William Ian Miller here, that are going to appall you. Christianity, with its idea that debt can be forgiven rather than paid, and capitalism, with its notion that an individual can choose bankruptcy instead of paying debt. So far we've explained that these Talionic societies began long ago. We've shown you a few of the places where they have existed. 
It's also true that Italianic societies exist right down to the present day. But what we really want to stress right now is that even where whole Talionic societies are not present, the more you come to understand Talionic principles, the more you will see traces and aspects scattered here, there, and everywhere. So let's just stay right close to home. The United States is clearly not a Talionic society. But to state the equally obvious, the U.S. criminal justice system operates in part on talionic principles, and it does so in its commitment to make punishment commensurate with crime. It's built into our society, into our justice system, and that's just one of countless examples. So what happens when we try then to think about forgiveness from within the dynamics of a moral economy? We're suggesting that it provides both a better understanding of the complicated dynamics of forgiveness and provides the basis for a stronger, more durable practice of forgiveness. It, it can also make forgiveness a more credible and attractive alternative to vengeance because it addresses the concerns and needs that often give rise to the desire for vengeance in the first place. Concerns such as fairness, justice, equality, dignity, and honor. So a first point then, which is a point of comparison. Like vengeance, forgiveness is responding to needs generated by this domain of injury, insult, and injustice. So it's not a case of vengeance over here in the real world. Uh, forgiveness in some spiritualized away with the fairies kind of thing over here, both are trying to address the same urgent set of human needs. However, while both vengeance and forgiveness are attempting to move us on from this domain of injury, insult, and injustice, vengeance is likely to define the goal of its actions as evenness. And on the other hand, forgiveness is much more likely to speak of reconciliation, or healing, or even peace. While forgiveness does not aim direct, directly at evenness, however, nonetheless, evenness must ultimately uh, be one aim of forgiveness because some form of evenness, however simple or complex, is always a mark of a healthy relationship. Let's pause briefly to address a particular concern. There are some forgiveness advocates who consider the concern for evenness wrong-headed and offensive. Forgiveness, they say, isn't about evenness. That sounds self-interested, petty, maybe even selfish. Forgiveness, is any, if anything, is about unevenness, going the second mile, loving enemies, expressly not giving people what they deserve, what they have earned, but overcoming their evil with good. And certainly to an extent, this is true. Many of the ways forgiveness works do seem to set aside concern for evenness. But evenness, we want to contend, is only, can only ever be set aside temporarily in service to a longer term, more complicated route to evenness, toward a more durable evenness, because evenness is simply not a standard that can be abandoned. Healthy relationships have to be even, or they just aren't healthy. So think about how often threats to the health of a relationship involve some form of unevenness, of uneven workload, perhaps, or uneven time committed to the relationship. And think about how recovering the health of relationships will so often mean working at evenness issues. Forgiveness then approaches evenness indirectly, even circuitously. It sets it aside for the moment, but it never makes evenness considerations go away. 
In the moral economy, vengeance and forgiveness are both oriented to this domain of insult, injury, and injustice. Both represent strategies to achieve peace. Miller comments, peace is about settling accounts, paying back what you owe. Peace that does not involve evening up scores and restoring the balance is not peace among equals. This is reflected in the very language we use. The Latin word pax, peace, is derived from the verb pacare, to pay. The same relationship is reflected in inverted fashion in the German term befriedigen, where the root meaning of peace, frieden, generates this designation for satisfying and discharging debts. And it is no different with the familiar Hebrew word shalom. The underlying Semitic root, shin lamed mem, has the core meaning of paying back in kind, paying wages, of making whole restitution. Given all this economic imagery, the idea of a moral economy, uh, we've tried to take a few analogies from the monetary economy and see what they might mean in relationship to the moral economy. So let me try out a few. The first one is this, applying forgiveness to the moral economy of responses to insult, injury, and injustice is in, in effect to inject new moral capital into the system. So there are more resources available to work with in solving the problem. And where there are more resources, more creative things are possible. So forgiveness involves love, generosity, flexibility, and these greatly expand what is possible. Second one then. Applying forgiveness to the moral economy is in effect to develop a more complex and creative system of accounting. Miller acknowledges that the teleonic system could be really rigid, that it required some play in the joints, he called it, if it was going to get disputants back to even. Well, forgiveness is that much more flexible thing. It is marked by play in the joints. And the last one. Let's accept that debts truly must be paid. In forgiveness, the victim, the creditor, chooses to let go of all or part of the debt, which is in effect to cancel the debt, which is in effect to pay all or part of the debt. Sounds kind of crazy, but how might that work? Well, thinking of forgiveness as the victim choosing to pay the debt that ought by right to have been paid by the perpetrator tosses up the ordinary assumption that victims are weak and perhaps have few or no options other than to absorb their abuse and suffer. And sometimes this is true. If forgiveness is actually mere resignation, however, or if worse yet, forgiveness somehow follows from a sense that I am of such limited value that I all but deserve the injustice uh, perpetrated against me, or at least it doesn't matter all that much, then that kind of forgiveness is damaging and we ought to reject it. So the ordinary assumption about uh, forgiveness says that victims are weak and powerless. Forgiveness, on the other hand, believes that when victims choose forgiveness, that is an act of strength. It can only arise from a morally, emotionally, spiritually strong self. Now think how that works in terms of our moral economy. The victim has a kind of spiritual, moral, emotional wealth that has allowed her to pay this debt. And with that wealth comes power. 
In this case, the power to act unexpectedly, to redefine the rules of engagement between victims and offenders. If I, the victim, have paid the debt that you, the perpetrator, ought to have paid, I've given you a gift. With a gift comes obligation, and the minimum obligation for the recipient of a good gift is gratitude. Now, and we could spin this out all kinds of ways, and none of it has any guaranteed outcomes, of course, but it generates new possibilities in circumstances where positive movement may seem all but impossible. And it has the very great merit of acknowledging the agency of the victim who is too often seen to be all but helpless. Now thinking of forgiveness as expenditure of wealth, of abundance, will be a mental revolution for some, including some forgivers and, some, and many detractors of forgiveness. Because forgiving is too often thought of as the expenditure of a scarce resource, of self in a way that will diminish self. Understanding forgiveness as a transaction in the moral economy is a really good framework for understanding and applying a point made by the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf in his great book, Exclusion and Embrace. Embrace is the metaphor that Volf uses for reconciliation, and he makes this distinction. He says, the will to embrace is ideally and in principle absolute, unqualified, indiscriminate, unlimited, and so forth. On the other hand, the act of embrace should and must be calculated, considered, and strategic. So in terms of the moral economy, the unqualified will to embrace amounts to an enormous injection of capital into the economy. More things are possible. On the other hand, the calculated nature of the act of embrace correlates with those mechanisms and strategies and structures by which a moral economy of relationships will always work. So both the abundance and the calculation are necessary to understand and apply biblical teachings about forgiveness. And it should not surprise us that acts of love must be calculated and strategic. This does not have to mean that they're self-serving. The needs and capacities of the recipient should always somehow shape the way love is expressed. Flooding children with toys may simply spoil them. Flooding famine victims with food may wreak havoc on distribution systems and lead to massive waste. Certainly, loving an addict can't mean helping to perpetuate destructive behavior. The relief and development work of the Mennonite Central Committee can be interpreted as a massive set of calculations about how to love well in the social and political arena. We'll close by naming just one way in which understanding forgiveness as a transaction within a moral economy addresses a particular abuse of forgiveness. Feminism has offered a critique of forgiveness that has a lot of integrity, needs to be taken very seriously. And that critique is that there is an understanding of forgiveness that says, because it is a Christian's duty to forgive, an abused wife and children must return again and again into a violent home, knowing with virtual certainty that that abuse will be repeated. And truly, if the act of embrace, if the act of forgiveness is unqualified, the logic is impeccable. Forgiveness will mean returning again and again. If the will to embrace, however, is unqualified, but the act of embrace is strategic, then those women, indeed anyone victimized by another, must think long and hard about what might represent the truly loving and just thing to do.
the best thing for everyone involved. At its best, peacemaking is hard work. There are no shortcuts provided for those committed to an ethic of love and forgiveness. Within the moral economy, we must strive to settle accounts, whether directly in talionic context or circuitously through the remission of debts. Peace rests within that delicate, dynamic balance of moral equipoise. Peace flourishes where evenness balances the vindication of the victim with the discharged obligation of the offender. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those. Amen.